Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Paul Ramsey. If you're here and this is your first time here, welcome to Sojourn. Um, I'm glad to see you this morning. I'm still fighting off uh, something, uh, and so I probably won't be able to say hi to you after the gathering. But, um, and please excuse my vocal quality should it deteriorate. My prayer has been that it wouldn't until maybe just after the, the sermon would be just fine with me. Um, it's an honor to be with you. I did want to clarify one thing from the announcements. This is about 99% sure this is my fault. The covenant members meeting, or sorry, class on the 22nd is right after the Sunday picnic at about one o'clock, not at 5 p.m. So if you're interested in the covenant membership class on the 22nd of January, that's not at 5 p.m., it's at 1 p.m. instead. Thank you for your patience with me. Pretty sure that's my fault, so. All right. As we come to Luke chapter two, starting in verse 41, we come to a wonderful passage. Uh, of course, we could say that about any passage that we come to in the scriptures, but we're here uh, in this new year in the season of Epiphany, which is a season in the life of the church where we celebrate the arrival, the appearance of Christ in the world uh, after Christmas. And every year in the season of Epiphany, we go through one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And so every four years we come around to the gospels and the season of Epiphany is a little bit too short to go through every passage in each of those gospels every four years. So every year we go through usually selections from one of those gospels, and that's true this year. Uh, but this year, we started Luke at the beginning of Advent, and we've been going through each passage, and here we are uh, at a passage which is the final passage in Jesus's life uh, before his adult ministry. Uh, Jesus is 12 years old, um, and we see in our passage the first recorded words of Jesus. Um, and so it's a wonderful passage, and without any further ado, I'd like to just dig in. Uh, this morning, there's three things uh, that I want to look at that I think that the Lord has for us in this passage this morning. First, we're going to look at the fact that spiritual growth comes through deepening intimacy with God. Second, we're going to see that deepening intimacy with God brings with it tension. And then third, we are going to examine what it looks like to lean into this tension as followers of Christ. But first, we're going to start with spiritual growth coming through deepening intimacy with God. In this passage, uh, we're given, like I said, the final season, or excuse me, scene of Jesus' growth before his adulthood. And right before our passage, for context, verse 40 
says this. This is the final uh, verse in last week's passage. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The last verse, as you just heard Britt read, is very much the same message. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so our passage is bookended with these statements from Luke talking about how Jesus grew. And so if we pause for a moment and think as we begin uh, about this astounding truth that Jesus grew. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, the eternal second person of the Trinity, uh, who was pleased to be born as a baby, totally dependent on his parents, uh, to learn from earthly parents, to go through the stages of human development, even though, as we will see, he is sure of what he needs to be about, even from a young age, we still see that he is pleased to submit to the natural growth of a human life. It's an incredible thing when we kind of pause to think about the fact that Jesus grew like you and me. And as we look at our passage, uh, where does a key aspect of this growth happen? We're brought back once again. If you've been with us, you know that we've been here before already in the book of Luke. We're brought back to the temple. Uh, Jesus's growth comes in close, intimate proximity with his heavenly father. And so let's read just the first, maybe the first half of our passage once again to get into the story. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know this. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And every mom in here groaned. And after three days, I guess dads too, dads care, would care about this. Forgive me, forgive me. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So last week we were in the temple. Here again, we're back in the temple. We're told that every year Jesus' family would go to the Passover. Jewish law required just the men to attend these annual festivals. And so the fact we're brought in once again to the piety of Jesus's parents, uh, Mary and Joseph, the fact that his mom went as well and they brought their children was a sign of particular piety on the part. We were, we're told, we're reminded that Jesus was born into a, a, a faithful Jewish family. And this was a special year. Jesus, we're told, was 12 years old. Uh, Jewish custom at the age of 13 is when a Jewish boy became a man. It's when he became responsible for himself before the covenant of God. Uh, later on in, in modern Judaism, this developed into the celebration of the bar mitzvah, the son of the covenant celebration. Um, this wouldn't, that didn't exist at this time, but it was a significant year. The bar mitzvah arose about the fact that 13 was a significant year. And so for Jesus to come to the temple when he was 12, the 12th year of a Jewish boy's life was a significant year. It was an intensive year of discipleship, of learning, um, where he would sit at the feet of teachers uh, and ask questions and be asked questions and consider and prepare for his 13th year. At the end of this particular year's festival of the Passover, when they were going home, when his family was going home, they left, but Jesus stuck around at the temple and his parents didn't find out until the end of the first day of travel. And that uh, this 
sounds crazy to think about, but um, this Jesus's family would have been part of a larger extended family, which would have been a lar- part of a larger community that probably all made this journey together from Nazareth. And different groups of the family uh, would have been together to make this journey to and from. And what we know about Jesus is that he was sinless. I know if you guys, some of you who are parents might know that you have different children and all children are different. Sometimes you have the child who you know, I don't need to keep track of this child in the grocery store. And sometimes you think your child might need a leash uh, because you can't keep track of your child. Um, Jesus was without sin. Can you imagine raising a sinless toddler? We don't, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, sorry, I had to pause for a moment. So uh, can you just imagine it for a moment? Jesus was a trustworthy child. There's a lot of details that Luke doesn't consider important for us. What did Jesus eat? Where did he sleep for these three days? We don't know these things, but what we do know is that Jesus's parents didn't have to worry about Jesus very much. Um, He was a trustworthy child. Uh, So they come back though, and, and they find him in the temple sitting at the feet of the rabbis. This was custom at the time. Teachers sat with their students. There was Q and A dialogue between teacher and students. And so we see that Jesus has a thirst to understand and discuss spiritual questions. And so to pause for a moment, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is engaging with the people of God in the house of God. Jesus is sitting at the feet of the rabbis and we see amazement. We don't know the contents of this discussion. We don't know the questions or the comments that he was making, but we do know that even the teachers were amazed. We're told that all were amazed at his answers, uh, at his questions, and at the answers that he gave to their counter questions. And when his parents find him, his response to them tells us something important in a way that completes this scene. So Jesus' parents come back searching for him, and then they find him there in the temple, and we're told that they're amazed too, And when his mother tells him that she and Joseph have been searching for him in great distress, listen to what Jesus says. These are the earliest words of Jesus recorded for us in the Bible. The first words of the the boy Jesus at 12 years old. These are the earliest words in the Bible. This is what he says. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We'll talk a little bit more about his interaction with his parents in a moment. But for right now, here's what I want to point out. First, Of course, the most striking thing in this statement at first is the fact that Jesus calls the temple my father's house. Of course, as we read back, we know that Jesus is the son of God. Christianity has been around for a long time. But if we think about the initial context, this is a really bold claim for a child at 12 years old to make. This is my father's house. We see here that Jesus is already aware that he is more than a mere student of this ancient faith. At 12 years old, He already demonstrates a strong sense of identity as the son of God with his heavenly father. Also though, note the necessity with which he speaks. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There is a sense of Jesus' sonship to the father. And as a result, we also see an an understanding of his uh, messianic identity. The fact that he was sent to earth for a particular purpose. This is a phrase that Jesus uses repeatedly in his ministry. I must go here, I must go there. And here Jesus starts the first of the must statements. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We see a sense of urgency from the beginning of personal communion with his father. Jesus is growing. And here we see his spiritual growth was coming through deepening intimacy 
with God, his father. He's been learning about him at home. He's been learning about him in the synagogue. And here he's coming up to the temple for the festival, to the place of the dwelling place of God with man. And he doesn't want to leave. He's there in God's presence and he doesn't want to go home. There is, there, there is, it's possible to learn many things from afar. But there are some things that you can't learn from afar. For Jesus to grow in wisdom and stature as the son of God, he needed to pursue intimacy with his father in his presence, in his house. And the same is true for followers of Jesus even today. It's unfortunately easy to fall into being content with merely learning about Jesus. I know a lot of people like this. Um, it's, it's too easy to fall into being content with merely learning about Jesus, with studying the answers to questions about him. It is wonderfully interesting to study the person and work of Jesus. I'm regularly amazed by how much people who wouldn't even consider themselves Christians know about Jesus and his life and ministry. But being a disciple of Christ, growing in wisdom and stature of God doesn't come only through reading about him or through hearing other people talk about him. It looks like going where he is. It looks like listening to him yourself, like talking with him, pouring out your heart to him, doing the things that he does, worshiping him, being with him. What does this look like for you? What does it look like for you to draw uh, near to your heavenly father? Your mind might go to meditating on God's word. This is a great place to start. The book of Psalms, the prayer book of the people of God begins with blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. On his teaching, he meditates day and night. This is a wonderful place to start. And last week, Dodds talked about it being better uh, to read God's word with others. You know, it's possible to eat a meal on your own, it's better to eat with others. It's possible to read on your own. It's even better to read with others. I couldn't agree more. This is true in my own personal life. Some of the most wonderful breakthroughs I've had in understanding and enjoyment of God's word have been in the context of smaller groups of chewing on God's word together. Um, whether in a parish gathering or whether in a group of men at a breakfast or whether in a class or back in my college fellowship as a new believer. And, what's, go and it's what's going on here too, if we notice, Jesus is talking about the things of God with the people of God in the house of God. He is with God's people as he grows. I was with a longtime friend recently uh, who drifted away from the church a few years ago. Um, he had a number of questions about his faith and he decided, as he was telling me, he decided he wanted to take some space to figure some things out on his own before going back to church. And so I asked him, I didn't ask him in these words exactly, but I asked him, you know, how's that going for you? Um, he said, well, you know, I just haven't been, I had just haven't gotten around to it. I still, I've got these books on my shelf that some friends gave me and just haven't gotten around to it. And it was, it saddened me. This is one of my friends from, from college. Um, but it's not surprising to hear that being the outcome. You see, that's not the picture we get in scripture of struggling and then going and figuring things out on your own. In scripture, we see that to be alone, I mean, from the very beginning, when God created humanity, he said, it's not good for man to be alone, right? And then even in the pages of the New Testament, when we look at the community of faith, we see that being alone is described as a dangerous place to be. There's a war going on that we can't see. We are in some sense, in a sense, we're behind enemy lines. 
Satan, the enemy, the accuser, is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking to divide and devour. And one of the best ways that he can do that is by isolating people one from another. And if this is you, to pause for just a moment, if this describes kind of where you are right now, I want you to know that um, Sojourn is a safe place for you. This is a safe place for you to come if you have questions about your faith. This is a safe place for for you to ask questions, for you to ask your real questions. We aspire to be a church where we're actually being honest with one another about the questions that we have about God, about what it means for our lives, about what is true and what is not true. If we're honest, even those who are maturing and who have been in the faith for decades sometimes step into that seat for a time and then step out of it a number of times over the course of our lives of growth. And so rest assured that you're not alone. Everyone in here has been or maybe even is in that seat right now. So please don't conclude that you should go alone by yourself to figure out the questions that you have about God. Draw in. Understand that there's no requirement to be here. Now there is teaching in the Bible that does point to time, to caveat, that does point to time alone with God, meditating on your bed, Jesus going to a desolate place to pray. Many of you like me have also experienced wonderful moments of intimacy with God in the quiet place on our own. So that's not to to denigrate those moments, but deepening intimacy with God doesn't require seclusion. Here in this passage, that's not where Jesus goes. He's at a formative time in his life. He's got all kinds of questions as he's learning and growing in the measure, uh, in, in, in stature and wisdom uh, and favor with God and man. And he goes to the place where the people of God are in order to grow. Now, of course, this building is very different from the temple of God in those days. Um, we are the fulfillment of the temple. The people of God are the fulfillment of the temple, not the buildings that we build. But why did we put so much thought and resource into cultivating such a wonderful space to gather in? It's because we know that we are embodied beings and we experience life in time and space with other people. And we want the place where we meet to support the things that we do together. This is where we gather for worship. This is where we come together to sing, to pray, to learn, to come together out of our disorienting lives in order to be reoriented to the things of God and what that means for our lives. God isn't here because God is pleased to dwell in buildings made by human hands. God is here because as Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. So if you wanna know what it looks like to go where the people of God are in the presence of God, gather together with the people of God in the church. Jesus in this pivotal time in his life chooses to stay behind when the whole group leaves for Nazareth because he doesn't want to leave. He's with his heavenly father. He's in the house of God in the presence of God growing in intimacy with his father and he doesn't want to leave. That's the first thing we see from Jesus here. Spiritual growth comes through deepening intimacy with God. But as we read on, we see that growth in intimacy with God brings tension with the world around. When we look at the interaction between Jesus and his parents, we're brought face to face with this reality, I think. Consider the story with me for just a moment. So Jesus stays behind in the temple and it takes his parents a few days to find him. Uh, It's understandable and appropriate for his parents to react the way that they do. Mary says, why have you treated us so? Haven't you known that we've been searching for you in distress? Now, this is probably understood best as a mild complaint uh, because we're told that they're astonished, 
right? They're overwhelmed by the events. They're amazed at what they're hearing. They're relieved to find Jesus. And so Mary, this isn't Mary yelling at her son, but it's her earnestly employing with him. Why have you treated us this way? Jesus' response, verse 49, why were you looking for me? As, a, as an aside, these are Jesus' first recorded words. And you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, this kind of sets the tone for the rest of the story of Jesus' life. He asks people, what are you seeking? Why are you looking for me? Didn't you not know that I'd be here? So it kind of sets the tone. But this scene is somewhat hard to wrestle with. You see, Joseph and Mary's response to Jesus isn't problematic. It would have been expected of any faithful, loving parents. But Jesus' words seem like, because they are, a gentle rebuke. Can you imagine that? A 12-year-old rebuking his parents. Now, even as there is a gentle rebuke, it wouldn't be true to say that there's a conflict or argument between Jesus and his parents. We're told later that Mary treasured these things up in her heart, and so she's not coming away bitter at this interaction. Furthermore, we do see that Jesus continues to remain submissive to his parents as they return to Nazareth. And so this isn't uh, a conflict uh, or some, somehow disobedient to his parents. What we do see, however, is a tension that has begun to exist. Not so much between Jesus and his earthly parents, but for Jesus between his heavenly father and his earthly parents. The reality of who he is, who he is. On the one hand, you have the necessity Jesus felt to enter into closer relationship with his father. And on the other hand, you have the obedience which Jesus continued to show to his parents. And we see that this tension has caused his parents pain. They've been searching for him in great distress. We're told in verse 50 that Jesus' parents don't understand. Right? They don't understand yet what this has to do with Jesus' mission or identity. When Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in your father's house? They didn't understand the saying, is what we're told. It was hard for them to fathom. Even as Jesus' parents, who had received the messengers from the angel, you know, the, the angels from heaven, explaining, they knew who Jesus was, but it was hard even for them to fathom the new ground that Jesus was breaking. Later on, we see the same in Jesus' disciples. Even as they know who he is, they repeatedly struggle to understand the words that he's saying when he makes claims about his divinity, when he makes claims about being the son of God. And if we pause uh, and realize, um, while his parents, uh, excuse me, while his parents were astonished, at the same time, we see that Mary treasures these things up in her heart. Not only does this tell us that she didn't take unkindly to Jesus' response, but it also tells us, it kind of calls us to do the same. Mary is a picture of what the faithful should do when they encounter truths of Jesus, especially those that we don't understand fully. If we pause and treasure this situation for a moment, if we consider what this situation means, we come to a remarkably simple, yet if we're honest, a remarkably difficult conclusion. Following Jesus means that our relationship to the world changes. Simple, but quite difficult. We like to have things both and. We like to keep our lives and have Jesus. And this isn't entirely an unfounded desire. 
Jesus, when he saves us, when we come to follow Jesus, he doesn't yank us out of our lives or out of the world. But at the same time, there is clearly a new order of priorities. The calling of the kingdom of God isn't uh, the calling to be more and more convinced of the benefits of adhering to a set of moral teachings. The calling of the kingdom of God isn't about finally giving up on our old beliefs and capitulating to miraculous claims of the Bible. The calling of the kingdom instead is a calling from one life to another. It involves being born again, we're told. Being born into a brand new reality, a new life, a new creation that is broken in with Jesus. It, in, it involves, it's something that happens from without as God replaces our hardened hearts of stone with sensitive hearts of flesh, sensitive to the things of God. It involves a personal relationship with a personal God who invites us to draw near to him through Christ with confidence as our heavenly father. And so it's true that Jesus doesn't yank us from the world, but at the same time, there is a new order of priorities, one that can cause breaks within families, can cause pain sometimes to those around us, confusion, frustration. What happened to her? Why have you changed? Why are you doing this? The way is costly. You see, the Bible presents us really with two ways, in many ways, from start to finish. Um, there's the way of the kingdom of God and the way of the kingdom of this world. There are places in the Bible where the world is referred to in entirely negative ways. Right? The world is a system of darkness governed by a hierarchy of powers and principalities that are enemies of God. This is what James refers to when James writes in, in chapter 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So on the, on the one hand, the world is described in totally negative terms. There are other places, though, where the world is described a bit differently. As though the world is the originally good creation of God, which has been marred by sin, which is now populated with snares and pleasures which oppose and seek to choke out spiritual growth, but which is ultimately awaiting the renewal of God. So while, according to Romans 12, we don't want to be conformed to this world, and we're told in 1 John 2 not to love the world or the things in this world, we are nevertheless, as the people of God, saved so that we can be sent into this world on the mission of God, who so loved the world that he sent his only son. We, we go into the world with the promise from Revelation 11 that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So these aren't contradictory images, seeing the world as the dominion of Satan and the world as something that God is in the business of redeeming. These aren't contradictory images. It's true that the world is a dark place. At the same time, God has placed us in the world alongside those who continue to walk in accordance with the world in order to pursue the mission that he's given us to see those people reconciled to their heavenly father. This means that while the people of God need to be wise to the reality of the war that's going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, we can nevertheless face temptation without fear, clinging to God, pursuing continued growth through deepening intimacy with him as pilgrims and sojourners, laboring towards and anticipating Christ's return and with it, the renewal of all things. When we are enemies of God, we are friends with the world. We live and breathe the systems of the world. We take in what the world gives us. But when we become friends of God, 
our relationship with the world changes, we're brought into a whole new reality, a heavenly reality, and this brings with it tension. That's not to say, as a, as a side, as a clarifier, that's not to say that Jesus is pursuing the kingdom while his family is pursuing the world. That's not what this is saying. It's good to remember that this is a particularly unique time in history uh, when the nature of the messianic ministry of Jesus was hidden from the faithful. It hadn't yet been revealed, not even to his parents. Jesus' family was no different. Even with all the promises of God, the nature of Jesus' ministry, the nature of the kingdom of God had yet to be revealed. And so as a result, even here among the faithful, we see this tension between Jesus' heavenly mission and his earthly relationships. That's the second point. The first thing we saw was that spiritual growth comes through deepening intimacy with God. And second, we see that deepening intimacy with God often brings tension with the world. I I should say will bring tension with the world. As we move on to our third point, we notice that in the midst of this tension, it's clear that Jesus doesn't struggle to know either God or his own mission. His identity and the task before him are abundantly clear. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In a number of ways, this passage sets the tone for the rest of the gospel of Luke and for the Christian life itself. I've mentioned that already, but if you think about it, we see amazement at the words of Jesus. Here we see even Jesus's parents are astonished. He baffles and astonishes people. There's confusion and a struggle to understand the words of Jesus. We see Jesus in the temple, engaging with the teachers in the temple. These are all things that we're gonna watch as they appear and they continue to come up time and again in Jesus's ministry. But primarily, we see here the one who from very early was here for a distinct purpose, to demonstrate the kingdom of God, to manifest the presence of God and to secure salvation for his people. Which brings me, I think, to two fundamental questions. The first question is this, what do we make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? This is one of the passages in the Bible where Jesus makes the claim that he is the son of God. All who encounter the words of Jesus have to come to grips, have to wrestle with Jesus's identity. The struggle Jesus's parents had is similar to the struggle the crowds had during his ministry. Just a couple of examples. Mark three tells us that uh, there's a scene where Jesus's mother and brothers come uh, and they call for Jesus and the crowd that's sitting around Jesus says, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So those following Jesus, were put for, this was put before them. Is he the son of Mary and Joseph or is he something more? Luke 11, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the wound that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, it certainly would have been a blessing to be Mary. Mary was blessed among women. Jesus certainly is the son of Mary and Joseph. But is there something more going on with this Jesus? It's the struggle we have today. Is he merely a man? Or is he something more? What do you think of Jesus? One commentator says, all will have to wrestle with Jesus's identity and decide exactly who Jesus is. 
Just as Mary is left to ponder Jesus' words, so too are we left to ponder as we read on and watch as his ministry unfolds. Jesus claims to be the son of God and that with him arrives this kingdom of God, this messianic kingdom. In Jesus, we find the first fruits of a new creation, the foundation upon which the glorious hope of the church of the renewal of all things rests. But if this is true, this takes precedence over everything, which comes to the second question, fundamental question that I believe this passage puts before us. What does it really mean if Jesus is the son of God? What does it really mean to follow him? What does it mean to seek the kingdom of heaven first? For Jesus, it looked like staying behind, even though it caused his parents distress. For the disciples, it looked like leaving their old lives behind, even while they struggled to, they wrestled to understand the implications of Jesus's ministry. What does it mean for us, for you, for me? Well, I think it looks like leaning into this tension. On the one hand, consider Jesus's words to his parents. Verse 20, or excuse me, verse 49. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We too must be about the things of God. We too must seek the kingdom of God first. Jesus had some clear and pointed words for the disciples who took some time to realize that God's will for their lives takes ultimate priority over everything. Luke in Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my own, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus makes it clear that following him is an ultimate kind of ask. It's an abandonment of the old and a taking hold of the new. It does come with wonderful promises. Jesus says in Mark 10, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left these things behind who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's a summary of Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. So there's wonderful blessings that Jesus promise, promises, but it is an ultimate ask. The kingdom of God changes your relationship with everything in life. But on the other hand, following Jesus doesn't mean betraying our earthly responsibilities. In Jesus's own life, his heavenly calling didn't exempt him from being a submissive son which we see there in verse 50, which is eye-popping in its own right. Here's Jesus, the son of God, claiming to be the son of God, whose parents come back for him and he returns with his parents and remains submissive to them. Submitting to the natural growth of a human life. The apostle Paul uh, thinks about wrestling with this, establishes a rule, he calls it, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And he goes and explains what this means. This has to do with all kinds of jobs, vocations, situations in life, where Paul says, remain as you are, stay where you are. God doesn't need you to leave where you are in order to follow him. Beware the escapist mentality. 
right? Gosh, if only I wasn't in this situation, God could use me for great things. No, Paul says, God can use you right where you are. Sometimes those situations that we're in do come with responsibilities. Paul applies this in a well-known example. Paul applies this to marriage. He says, if you're unmarried, I urge you to remain as you are. And he gives this reason. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. There's the phrase, his interests are divided. But Paul is clear, do not seek divorce. Don't seek separation. Don't run away from the tension. This is what Paul says. Lean into the tension. Seek the kingdom first, even in the midst of divided interests. Seek the kingdom first, both you and if possible, your spouse too. So following Jesus is not about betraying our earthly responsibilities, but it's about understanding a new order of priorities. Following Jesus means leaning into this tension and trusting that if we seek the kingdom of God first, God will provide for us all that we need. Because ultimately, as we've seen, Jesus knows this tension himself. Hebrews chapter four describes Jesus as the great sympathetic high priest. He's not just empathetic from afar, he's sympathetic. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows us. He's walked in our shoes. He led the way into and through this tension and he did so perfectly. Jesus doesn't ask you to go out armed with the knowledge of the battle that lies before you and conquer all these things on your own. He asks you simply to follow him. What does it look like to lean into this tension? It looks like following Jesus, joining him, walking with him, cultivating intimacy and relationship with him more and more day by day and watch as he, by his spirit, cares for you, guards you, guides you, grows you as sons and daughters in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. You see, your character will be formed one way or another. Your character is always being formed. The question is, What is your character being formed by? Is it being formed by the world around you? Or is it being formed by the kingdom of God? Or more specifically, perhaps, the king himself, King Jesus. You see, I think uh, even faithful Christian parents know what is going on in this passage. Cultivating loving, warm relationships with your children is both wonderful and important, but it can't stop there. Pointing our, pointing our kids to ourselves and our example only gets them so far. We must bring our children before God himself like Mary and Joseph did. We must release our children for God to use them as he sees fit, even if it comes at pain for us. Because if we don't, unfortunately, all they will probably know is Christianity as a set of rules or a set of maybe outdated beliefs that my parents once held. Children, just like us, need to come into the presence of God, behold him, and engage with him, worship him, follow him themselves. So what does this actually look like? There's three simple things that I think leaning into this tension looks like for us sojourn. The first is this, go to the presence of God to be with the people of God. That's what Jesus did here. He wasn't out in the wilderness. He was celebrating a festival of worship and he decided to stick around. 
for more spiritual conversations. This is what we do week after week, gathering together here and in homes, opening the scriptures, experiencing the presence of God together as he leads us and guides us along the journey of life with him. Get to the presence of God with the people of God. The second thing is this, give yourself to worship and to sitting at the feet of the teachers God has gifted and placed in your life for your growth and maturity. That's what Jesus did here. He was earnestly engaging in worship. He was sitting at the feet of these teachers. Our own growth in wisdom and stature is a gradual but necessary one. You may be able to teach your teachers at times who, will maybe, who, who, who may be imperfect in many ways, but you get to trust that this is the way that God grows his people. It's the way that he grew his, own, his only begotten son. It's the way he grows you and me patiently, but surely in the temple of God, among the people of God where his presence dwells gradually, day by day, as he grows us in wisdom and stature and favor. And then third, commit yourself to these things, even if it means choosing them over other things. It's remarkably simple, but this is the battle. This is what Jesus did here. Jesus fought for this time. He fought for this time with his heavenly father. He stayed behind when the rest were going off to a different place. And this is the battle for us today in an information age where we are inundated with information and we have everything at our fingertips. We have so many voices talking to us. It's easy to think that we can sit back and do something new because there's some new way of getting close to God, of learning how to be Christians. But the truth is the way of spiritual growth hasn't changed. It happens through cultivating intimacy with God and one another, through engaging with the people of God learning at the feet of our teachers, meditating on God's word. It happens through living like Jesus did, through taking up our cross, through living in accordance with love and sacrifice rather than pride and holding on to things. It happens through living lives of repentance, patiently entrusting ourselves to God and one another for our good and for his glory. And for some of us, I trust these practical encouragements here at the end are encouragements for you that you're doing the things that you don't need anything other than these things. Following Jesus and growing in wisdom and stature isn't something that we do. It's something that God does as we engage in the ordinary ministry of life in the church. So I hope this is an encouragement for you. But also for some of us, my prayer is that this is a heart level invitation, not from me, but from God himself, who's inviting you to draw close to him, to come into his presence to behold wonderful things in his word, to draw near to him, come to him, to give yourself to the things of God that God has placed before you for your growth. What is currently crowding out this time in your life? What is it that's currently crowding out these things in your life? Or what is threatening to crowd out these things in your life? Offer those things to the Lord. And here's the thing, as I close, it's important to remember that we will not do this perfectly. We will slide into distraction. We will not give ourselves to these things perfectly. We will not walk in this tension perfectly. We will sometimes go too far on one side or the other, but that's where the mercy of Jesus becomes all the more real to us because Jesus drew close to his father perfectly. His eyes were on the kingdom of heaven perfectly. We are not perfectionists at Sojourn. 
We simply follow the one who is perfect and trust him to pick up where we are lacking. And so rather than white knuckling our way towards perfection, perhaps all we need to do this morning is pause and consider like Mary did, treasuring these things up in her heart and wondering what was going to come of it. Are we treasuring these stories? Why is it that we're given all of these details about Jesus instead of a, just a set of principles that we're supposed to follow? It's because this is all about a story, the most important story in the history of the world, that God became man for our salvation. Consider the invitation to learn and grow in wisdom, absolutely. But more than that, to follow a good shepherd who gave it all for you. He's not some teacher waiting for you to fall in line. He's a savior who died for you before you did anything for him, who's pursuing you even now. And this is perhaps the most important thing we can do, simply treasuring these things in our hearts. We don't lift a finger for our salvation. We treasure in our hearts the stories of the one who did it all for us growing in our love and appreciation day by day for all that he's done for us. And wouldn't you know, we do become the things that we love. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this teaching about Jesus, your son, who you sent for our sake to do all for us. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ for transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. Thank you for calling us into fellowship with Jesus Christ, for bringing us near by his blood, we who were far off. Lord, it is not to us, but to you that we give glory. I pray for every man, woman, and child in here, that those of us who know your love would know it deeper, that those who don't would come to know it, we pray that your gospel would come not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Lord, you have invited us into a life of tension. And we sit here trusting that you know what you're doing in our lives, that you know what you're doing in our hearts, that you know what you're doing in this church and us. Please make us simply worshipers men, women, children who treasure these stories of our loving Savior and remember them often as we give you thanks. And would you, as you shape our hearts in your direction, would you cause us to become more like you, to walk into the fullness of the measure and stature of Christ, which is your design for your church. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.